Uh, I think as, as many of you know, uh, here at Church of the Apostles at Kodo, we are a, an Acts 29 church. That is, we are part of the Acts 29 network of churches. It is a church planning network, and we have been part of Acts 29 for, I think, uh, I was trying to remember this week, about eight years. Uh, when we decided as a church to, to connect with Acts 29, uh, when I first started, I went to our elders and said, I think that would be a good thing. They all agreed. And so I went through a process for us to join Acts 29. And when I did, uh, part of that was you have to go through some assessments and you go to different conferences and different things, get connected with different guys. And it was, it was a really great time. It was helpful for me. It was encouraging in a lot of ways. And, you, and in some of those things, going through those steps, you would read different books and different things. And I remember there was a book that I had to read that was kind of assigned reading uh, called Church Planner by a guy named Darren Patrick. And I read that book and it was really helpful and encouraging. Uh, one of the first things I went to through Acts 29 uh, sitting at a thing and turned around, met the guy and the guy next to me was Darren Patrick that had just written the book that I was reading. And I'll tell you, it was a little intimidating at first. You're like, uh, you know, you're the new guy going through this whole assessment process. And I started talking to him and he was incredibly gracious and incredibly kind and greatly encouraging. Uh, I had the opportunity to meet him one other time and he was always the same way. And so it was this guy that I'd read his book and I talked to him several times and then listened to his preaching. And I just, I really liked him a lot. I just kind of connected with him. A brother in Christ that was just so encouraging is a few years older than I am. And so I went through that. Fast forward a, f- a few years. Uh, I think it was probably about four years later. Um, it came out that Darren Patrick was being removed from his church. He basically was being fired by his elders. And the came to light that he had just been... Um, I think the words they used was overbearing in his leadership, that he was kind of isolating, that he was not listening to his elders and a few other things that came. And I just remember being so saddened by that, just disappointed, but saddened and and frustrated kind of for him and and with him through that. Fast forward another couple years and uh, Darren kind of made a almost like a comeback. He he, he didn't come back. and, And I mean this in the best possible way. I've seen different times in my life where a pastor falls and then six months later they show up and they say, I'm taking my church back. And you go, really? Like six months later? Like that kind of, but that's not what happened with Darren. He came back and he w- he didn't take over a church. He wasn't in leadership, but he just started to tell his story. And he started to talk about uh, his own pride and his own arrogance and what had led to this. And he just kept talking about the gospel and who God was and what he was doing. And it was this beautiful picture of what uh, redemption looks like. And I remember one of the things that he kept saying is whenever he was given the opportunity to speak around that time, he'd say, no failure is a success story, but it can become a redemption story. And so he wasn't saying, look at all the things I did wrong. Let's look at Jesus and how he can forgive me. And it was so encouraging to hear that and to kind of see that, this guy that you're kind of cheering for and I wanted to see him do well. And that was so uh, encouraging at the time. And then last year, May of last year, my brother, Jeremiah, who's a pastor in Acts 29 in Houston, texted me one morning and he said, I just heard that Darren Patrick took his own life and I am sick. And I remember walk, I remember I was walking in my neighborhood and reading that text and I was angry and I was sad and I was so frustrated. Like he took his own life. His four kids and a wife is 50 years old. I think he really loved the Lord. And, and I don't know what was going in his life at that moment that led to that. But I just remember being so overwhelmed by that. 
and thinking just sadness. This guy that I really liked and a brother in the Lord. And I was thinking about that this week as I kept reading just the last two weeks, reading this last part of the Lord's prayer that we're looking at where Jesus teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And I kept going back to that and thinking about Darren, thinking about other people in similar situations, thinking about a class I had in seminary called spiritual formation. And I remember in that class at one point, a uh, professor gave us this uh, project to do, and then we talked about it. I remember we spent a whole day talking about it in class, about how many people in the Bible, the biblical characters you see, how many finish well. And I remember when we did that project, it was eye-opening because it was under 50%. Overwhelmingly, more, than, uh, more times than not, you saw people just kind of finishing with a whimper, kind of a mess, Right, like Saul and, and Solomon. Gideon. You read the book of Judges and Gideon sees God move in all these ways and then the end of his story is he's leading his family into idolatry. And you see these things over and over. And it's not just the Bible and it's not just that story about Darren, but I've seen that in my own life of people that I know that are following the Lord and then all of a sudden they're not. And they seem to just kind of float away. Sometimes it's more like a... a, 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 a kind of slow, steady slide. Sometimes it's just undone. And I've seen that at different times. And so it kept bringing me back to this passage and what Jesus teaches us to pray. That in what we call the Lord's Prayer, which is only four sentences, the short little prayer, that the last thing he says is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so I would just say to you, whether you've considered it recently or not, whether you feel it today or not, this prayer is vitally relevant for you and for me, and it will continue to be the entirety of your life. It will never not be relevant to us. Lord, lead us from temptation and deliver us from the evil one. And so I want us to think about just that last line of the Lord's prayer as we kind of close our short series on it today. And this is the way I want us to look at it as we look at verse 13 there. What does Jesus mean when he teaches us to pray that way? I think sometimes we read it on its face and we can get off into some different things that he's not actually saying. And so I want us to be clear on what he means there. So first, what does he mean? Secondly, why is it so vital? And then lastly, how do we practically live this out? So what does he mean? Why is it so vital? How do we practically live this out? And so let's just start with what does Jesus mean first and foremost. And so we're really just going to look at that one verse, Matthew six thirteen. But if you want to turn to James chapter 1, we're going to spend most of our time in James chapter 1 as we think about that together. And so the, the letter of James, the apostle James, Jesus' brother that writes to the early church. And I want us to pick up there first as we consider what Jesus means and really, really just to say what he doesn't mean first and foremost. And so look at James chapter 1 with me. Verse 12, he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire 
And then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so the first thing that I want us to think about is when we read that prayer and Jesus says, lead us not into temptation, I've heard people kind of take that to mean, well, Jesus is saying that we pray to God that God wouldn't tempt us. Lead us not into temptation. And they take it very much on its face and they kind of say it that way. Well, we're praying that God wouldn't tempt us. But what scripture tells us and what the context tells us and and what James tells us here, what God's word tells us is that God doesn't tempt us. God never tempts us with evil, that that's not what Jesus is praying. And so there it's very straightforward in James chapter one, that God cannot tempt us, that he doesn't tempt us, that there is no evil in him, that in and of himself, he is completely devoid of all sin. He is perfectly good in every way. And he does not tempt us with sin. And and quite frankly, to say otherwise, to attribute it to God and saying God is tempting us, that would be sinful. We are now saying something that is not true, that the Bible doesn't say, that God himself does not tempt us with sin. And so the first thing I want us just to think about, if if you've ever had that thought or you read it and that's kind of the way you were thinking, let's kind of clear the table. That's not what it's saying. It's not what the Bible is teaching us. God is not tempting us to sin. He's not up there going, I'm going to throw some things at you now. I'm going to try to tempt you into this unless you pray and ask me otherwise. That's not what this is saying. He doesn't tempt us to sin. That's the first thing. The second thing I would say what it's not before we get to what it is, it's just this idea that if we pray or we pray enough or we pray fervently, that we will never have any temptation in our life. It's not that all temptation would be removed and we would never, ever be tempted in any way, right? Temptation itself is not sin. It's what we do with the temptation that's either sin or not sin. But temptation will come in this life. And I was thinking even what Jesus teaches or what he prays for us, prays for his disciples in John chapter 17, when he talks about that they would not be taken out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one, that you would protect them from evil in the world. And as long as we are in this world, as long as we are in these bodies before we either die and go to be with the Lord or Jesus returns, we will face temptation. It's in the world. It's a fallen, sinful, broken world where sin is, is prevalent everywhere. And we will be faced with lies. We'll be faced with things that come at us. There will be constant battle over truth each and every day of our life. And so what Jesus is saying here is not that we would ascend to a place where there's zero temptation and that we never face anything. And so it's not that God tempts us and it's not that there would never be any temptation. But I think what Jesus is teaching us and what he's pointing us to and talking about here is that when temptation, when struggles, when trials come in our life, as they most certainly will, Jesus is teaching us to turn to him and rely fully on God and his grace to keep us from sin. And as we do, he grows us in him. And so he's teaching us when he says, lead us not into temptation is when those temptations come that we would look to God and we would not go into that temptation, but we would turn to him. And he's pointing us to what that looks like and how we do that. And so I want us just to think about that together for a minute. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. One of the questions that comes, and maybe, maybe you've had this question. It's one that's been uh, posed since the beginning of Christianity. Um, And it's just this, why doesn't God just remove the temptation altogether? Why does he let evil continue? Why doesn't he just do away with it? 
You know, one of the classic conceptions is that if God is all powerful and he's all good, why is there evil in the world? And why does he allow it to continue? So why doesn't he just not remove it? And if you've had that question or you've wrestled with that, that's a good question. And I don't want to be flippant towards that. It's an important question that we think about. Well, why is that? Why is he teaching us to turn to him in those difficulties and in those trials and in those times and trust him more fully? Why didn't he just remove it? And so if we look at what scripture says and what it tells us and we go back and we work our way through all of it, God has made us in his image and after his likeness. He's made us to be conscious being conscious beings. He's made us to be relational. He, he's made us to have real choices with real consequences. He's given us that freedom to make real choices. And he made us in this way. And in doing so, God giving us real choices with real consequences, he made for the possibility for evil to exist. God himself is not evil. He does not will evil. He does not make it. It's not come from him. But in allowing us to have real choices with real consequences, it makes for the possibility of evil to exist. And so what we have done as people, what part of the angelic realm as created beings with real choices and real consequences have done has rebelled against God. We as people have rebelled against God in our sin and turned from him. And in doing so, sin is in the world and it is pervasive. And so I want us just to be clear on what scripture teaches. God doesn't uh, will ill. He doesn't bring evil, but he gives us real choices with real consequences. And as we turn from him, those consequences continue. And so for a season, God has allowed those things to continue to go on until he returns. And what it tells us and what scripture tells us is that God is using all of this for the best possible end. And that pushes the limits of our understanding and how that will work and exactly how all that will come together. But God ultimately will be glorified. It will be for our good and his glory in the end when he brings all of this together. It's the best possible way to the best possible end of what God has in mind in his sovereignty. He has allowed that to continue. And so when we think about that, God allows those things to come in our life, but then he allows those struggles to come, the temptations to come so that we can turn to him and grow in our relationship with him. He uses those in our life. And I want to show you that because that's what James says in James chapter one. And so go back to James again, verse two. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. And so I want you just to think about what he's saying there and what he's telling us. That God works in the trials and the struggles and the frustrations and the temptations of your life that come at you. James even says, consider it all joy, brothers. When these things come into your life, consider it joy because God is at work to bring you to a fuller relationship with him. And if you notice what he says there, he says that it will uh, consider it joy for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And so steadfastness, that means patience, endurance, being able to withstand difficult things, continuing to trust God in all things. And so when those trials come and you pray, God, 
uh, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. And we turn back to him. He continues to use that. He continues to grow us in that relationship with him. And it produces this steadfastness as you see God move and meet you in the middle of it. And we continue to grow through that. And so I think even if you struggle with what the Bible says on this, even if you struggle with that idea or you're not sure about Jesus or you're not sure about the Bible, you know this to be true, that you grow through difficult things. All of us know that. I don't know about you, but at our house, we've been watching the Olympics, right? It's been on our TV, like kind of around the clock. Whenever it's on, we're watching it. And so we've gotten into watching the Olympics and I love watching the Olympics because what you see is people who are the very, very best at what they do. The most amazing athletes in the world. And it's pretty cool to watch them just to see the things that they can do. Uh, Joanne and I were joking about the other day. She read this thing that said uh, they need on the Olympic coverage to put an average Joe out there for each one of the events. And the guy said, the reason we need to do that is so we can see how amazing these people actually are. We lose sight of how incredible they are. And I kind of got tickled thinking about that, what that would be like. I was thinking, uh, I was at the gym last week. And at the beginning of our workout, we had to run an 800 meter, which is half a mile. And then do some other things. And so I went flying out and ran it like as fast as I could. And I ran it and almost like right at three minutes, which for me, I was like, Yes. Of course, I was so exhausted, I couldn't do the rest of the workout at all. (laughs) But I ran that 800 meters, right? Three minutes. And then I read the world record for the mile, double that, is three minutes and 32 seconds. (laughs) And I thought, what would that be like if they put me out there on the mile with the people running the mile? We ran four laps. You know what it would be like? They would lap me twice. (laughs) It would look like I'm standing still as they all go flying past me, right? And so just uh, just kind of put aside your disbelief for a second. Let's pretend I'm as good of an athlete as the people that are in the Olympics. How did they get to that fast? Like I, it's possible for me to get to that fast. How did they get there? How did they get to where they're that fast and that strong and they run with such endurance that they have such steadfastness? And you know the answer to that, right? They got up every day and they ran. And they ran a lot and they ate the certain things that they needed to eat and they did the stretching and, and the weightlifting and all the stuff that goes with it. And they did it every single day. And when they did it, they would get up and they would run as fast as they can and they'd run that mile and they'd get done. And then the next day they would try to beat that time by one second and another second. And they keep working and keep pushing and then they realize I can go a little further and a little further because going through those difficulties and those trials produce steadfastness. Right? Being able to withstand in those moments. It brings this resiliency. And that's how they got so fast. That's how they got to the place where they could do that. And so when God talks about us counting it all joy when you meet various trials, brothers. When you are tempted to believe a lie over God's truth. And we turn back to God and we say, God, deliver me from temptation, deliver us from evil. And we continue to trust him in everything. He meets us there and he continues to grow us into fuller of what we are called to be in him. And it's not us, but it's his power working through us and in us. And we see it and we see him meet us there. And he continues to grow us into what we are called to be. He's sanctifying us. 
growing us greater and greater into his image and what we were made to be through what Jesus has done for us. And so what Jesus is praying for here is that when temptations come, when the trials that will inevitably come in our life, that we would turn to him and trust him to keep us. And as we do, and as we see God move, he continues to grow us in that, in our faith, that we're clinging to him and we're seeing more clearly who he is and what he's done. And so I think that's what Jesus is praying for. But then secondly, I want you to think about why this is so incredibly vital for every single one of us. And there's a couple ways to think about it. When you think about why Jesus included this in this short prayer, that this is the last thing he teaches us to pray, that when you read what he says here in James chapter one, it starts to help us understand why this is so vital. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials. He doesn't say if. He doesn't say if possibly this happens in your life. He says when they come, count it as joy. And continue to look to God. Continue to trust him in all things. And so when we talk about why it's so vital, we are going to face temptations in our life. We are going to face trials. Part of that is because of the sinfulness of our own heart. Even when we are a new creation and we have put our faith in Jesus and in Christ, you are a new creation and he gives you new desires and he begins to work in your life and he begins to shape and mold you into his image more fully but we still have sin in our life. We still have old habits. We still have old ways of thinking. We still have things that we've been bombarded with in our life. And there's this constant temptation to turn back to those things. And as we go through our life, those things will still be there. They will still be pulling at us in different ways. And it's not just internally in our own heart, in our own sinfulness, but it's the world at large. A sin has pervaded into everything. And so we are constantly bombarded with lies, with things that are the exact opposite of what God's word says. Oftentimes it's wrapped in a way that can be very appealing, can be very deceptive. And we're constantly hit with those things. And so it's not just even our own sinful hearts, but it's the world that we live in. And we will be constantly confronted with these things. But there's another thing that I want you to consider. It's not just our sinfulness. It's not just the sinfulness of the people around us and our world, but there's something more to it than that. Jesus says, lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. If you're reading in the ESV that we have there. But if you look closely, there's actually a footnote that points you to the bottom. And it says, some manuscripts are another way to interpret is to say, deliver us from the evil one. And scholars are kind of split on that has to do with the word that's used there. And is it talking about a person or just evil in general? And I think the answer is both. I think it encompasses both of those. And so I I need to say this and and I need to confess that I don't say this enough. And I was thinking about this this week as, as a pastor and in preaching and teaching. I believe this and I say this, but I don't say it enough. And I'd say there's a fine line between an unhealthy obsession and, and then the other end of being uh, too flippant or, or not taking seriously and end up being naive. And that is this. There is real personal evil in the world. And the Bible is clear on this and it says it over and over and over again. Satan is real. Demons are real. They seek to kill and destroy all that is God's. And so part of the angelic realm that God created with real choices And real consequences rebelled against God, wanting to be God in his place, and he threw them out. 
And now they roam the earth seeking to destroy God's good creation. And the Bible tells us that. Jesus saw this everywhere he went. He was very clear on it. How many times Jesus met demonic people that were being overtaken with demons and they would immediately recognize him. Immediately grow scared in the face of Jesus walking on earth. But what scripture tells us over and over, and I think what Jesus is pointing to is deliver us from evil. It's evil in the world, but it's the attacks of the enemy. And so Ephesians chapter six, Paul writes, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so when temptation comes, it is partly the sinfulness of our own heart. It is partly the sinfulness of the world that we live in and the sin of others. It's the sinfulness that we see in the systems and the things, the governments, the things that we have around us that have not sought to honor God. But it is also real personal evil in the world. And oftentimes it's a confluence of all those things. And so Jesus teaches us to pray. Lead us not into to temptation, but deliver us from evil or the evil one. And so he's teaching us that temptations are real and they will come, that they are all around us and that it's serious and we should take it as such. But he's also teaching us yet if we turn to him, he will use it for our good. Right? That's what James is saying. Count it all joy, brothers, when you have various trials come into your life. Because when you pray and you ask God, lead me not in temptation and deliver me from the evil one. And you ask him believing, guess what? He does it. He has the power over sin and death and demons and Satan. There is nothing in this world that can take you from him. Nothing. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus because of what he's done for you. And so often we're flippant about it and we forget, we forget that we're in a real battle. we we just kind of float along. I was convicted of this. I, I couldn't sleep the other night. Last week I was reading and thinking about this and I couldn't sleep. And for the first time in a long time, I felt like I was being attacked. So I sat up in my bed and I prayed. I said, God, you are in control of all of this. There is nothing that will stand against your hand. And I laid back down and I went to sleep. And I slept great. And it was like God reminding me, I am with you in all of this. Don't forget. Bring all of it to me at every time, no matter what. And so God calls us into that relationship with him. And so I want you just to think about practically how this works out day to day. What it looks like in our life. And so temptations will come. Sin is ignoring God and the world he created. Sin is believing lies about who God is or believing the opposite of what he has told us in his word. And we are bombarded with that all the time. And so when those things come and we're tempted to believe things that are not true, function in unbelief, not fully believing who God is and what he's done. When those come, 
And we have that choice of ignoring God in the world he's created or not. We turn back to him. So I'll give you an example. I think it's one that we all can relate to. Anxiety that comes in our life, being anxious over the things that are in front of us. The last year's kind of proven that, right? Viruses, government, elections, fires, rate, all the things you see on the news. And it's so easy to look at it and feel this tense, like, right? This anxiety that comes, this anxiousness that comes. You go, why am I anxious? God tells us, Jesus tells us, actually just later in this chapter of Matthew chapter 6, he says, be anxious for nothing. It's a command, be anxious for nothing. There's nothing that you should be anxious for. But I'm anxious and I'm feeling it. And so what's happening? What am I not believing is true about God? What am I not believing that God has told me that pertains to my life right now? And so oftentimes we look at what's going on in the world, whether it's finances or virus or elections or school or job or whatever it may be. And we want to go, God's not in control of this. That's really what we're saying a lot of times. Oh no, I don't know how this, he must have lost control of this. And so when that happens, we turn and we pray to him. We confess, God, I am anxious right now over the things that are in front of me. I feel it. I feel this anxiety and you tell me to be anxious for nothing. And so we confess. We name those things where they are and we confess and we take those to God and we say, I'm God, I am anxious in this. Help me, help my unbelief. Lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. And we continue to turn those things back to him. And then we let the truth of God's word stand over lies. Because that's what he says here in James. Right, that he talks about being tossed to and fro from the wind. And then he says, uh, let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And so we start to doubt and he says, no, ask believing. Cling to the promises of God. Go back to God's truth and let it stand over lies. And so when I'm anxious, I confess and I say, God, I'm anxious. And then I read God's word and I hear Jesus saying to me, be anxious for nothing. Look at the birds in the air. I take care of them. You are more valuable than they look at the flowers in the fields. I'm the one that makes them rise and I'm the one that gives them their life. You're so much more valuable than that. Be anxious for nothing. And so we go back and we say, God, make that real to my heart. Lead me not in temptation. Help me to avoid the things that I want to believe that are not true, that you clearly tell me are true. And we continue to take those things before him over and over and over. And the good news is that God meets you in that. And he does make it real. James tells you when you ask and you ask believing and you continue to come to him, he meets you in that. And he continues to grow you in that. You'll be complete and lacking in nothing as you see him meeting you in those moments and in those times. And he grows you in that faith. And so God's calling us into that. And so as he does, that's not always easy. And I can say that to you and go, okay, I'm going to do my steps. I'm going to confess. I'm going to ask God. But as you do, I would just say to you in all of that, continue to look to Jesus in every part of it. Jesus came and he's walked through every single thing that we've walked through. He's been tempted in every way that we have yet without sin. He knows every single thing that you are struggling with and you are dealing with. And so when you want to go I don't know how this works or how this Jesus stands there saying, I've done it all. 
I've gone through every bit of it and I've done it for you. Come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You rest in Jesus and what he's done and nothing else. And God meets you in that and he continues to multiply our faith, to grow us in our faith as we see him moving and trusting him. And so I just say to every one of us, me, all of us included, is vitally relevant for every single one of us the rest of the days of our lives. That we would learn to come to Jesus with everything. And in every moment, God, I desperately need you. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you meet us in the midst of trials. That you are near in all things. And I thank you that you never leave us and you never forsake us. We thank you that you've done for us what we could never ever do for ourselves. That you have put an end to sin and death through what you did for us on the cross, that we can look to you and trust you, the power that you have working in and through us. We pray that you would help us to see so clearly that that is true in all things. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name.